You can see my award-winning climate comedy show spoilers at a festival near you, provided you live near or are going to McHuncliffe or Wells Comedy Festivals. More dates added soon near you, conceivably, who knows what might happen. And if you are at Mac, come and see ComCom Redacted live at 4pm on the Saturday. Go to stuartgoldsmith.com and click the very attractive banner image to find out more. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Are you new to the podcast? Go to comedianscomedian.com to learn all about the show, get hold of some exciting extra free stuff, including my stand-up show from 2015, and a list of the top 10 episodes of the podcast as voted for by the listeners. It's a really good place to start if you have just discovered the show. Now, on with the show. This is a podcast from comedianscomedian.com. This is the Comedian's Comedian Podcast. Welcome to the Comedian's Comedian. I'm Stuart Goldsmith, and today I am thrilled to be talking to Sarah Kendall, a fabulous Australian actor who has lived in the UK for a long time and who is the sort of comic who, well, one of the things we'll talk about is the fact that she no longer really works the clubs. She creates shows for festivals and tours them, and she's just someone that uh, I aspire to be more like, I guess. I mean, she's got a phenomenal... Um, uh, she's got a phenomenal presence on stage. She's got a really interrogative, analytical approach to her comedy. And it's also really, really heartfelt. So uh, she is just someone who I think is an absolutely fantastic comic, a brilliant artist. And uh, I hope you get a lot from this episode. With thanks to uh, the Assembly Venues in Edinburgh, who very kindly let us record in her venue before uh, the rest of the show started that day. This is Sarah Kendall. Thanks for coming on the show. I no, really my wanted, pleasure. I've, my pleasure. I've, I've so wanted happy. to have you on it for so long. You are someone who I I feel like I identified a long time ago as just a craftsperson. Oh wow! Like Thank you, you, you know what you're doing. Yeah. Well, I mean, most of the time, I, I th- it improves. Like I certainly, I feel, you know, uh, I've been doing this for 17 years now, so I'd hope that I kind of have some level of craft, <laughs> but. Uh, I suppose you just learn through experience, don't you? You know, and you make the mistakes and you get burnt badly and you go, well, I'm never going to do that again. Or, you know, I dealt with that situation really badly. Or, or or even with jokes, you start to go, I think I know what's wrong with this joke. Or I think I know how to fix this joke. You know, you do start to bring, as you say, uh, you do develop, um, I suppose, weapons in your arsenal that you, you can apply I want to talk. I want to talk more specifically about some of those weapons. But before we get to that, for people that don't know you, mm. and also to be honest, for me, I mean, we've run into each other on the circuit a few yeah, times, yeah. but I don't really know where you're from yeah. comedically. You're right. obviously an Australian person, yeah. now resident in the UK for yeah. some time. Yeah. Can you give us a, a sort of? Can you give us the potted history you give to journalists, but saying it all in a different way? Yeah, sure. <laughs> but the journalists never ask that because I think I know what you're. Do you mean like my comedic? Yeah. Where, where, yeah, right. Where are you coming from? Yeah, right. Um, I, uh, I mean, when I was a kid, I mean, my 
my my earliest kind of like the first things that I really remember laughing hard at and just thinking I loved this feeling so much, you know, like and this sort of that that, that first part uh, the goodies used to really make me laugh. Uh, I used to love the goodies. Uh, I used to love. Um, Definitely Inspector Clouseau, like the Pink Panther series. My father was nuts about Peter Sellers. So it was a very slapstick kind of formative stuff. Um, but when I became a teenager, I got really into um, American comedians and uh, like SNL. I get, do you remember you could go to the video store and get like best of SNL VHS videos and you could get the best of Eddie Murphy, the best of Bill Murray, and it was just a compilation. It's like now what you do on YouTube, you just – you know, just click yes. from, from video to video. Mike, SNL is a huge gap in my knowledge, as anyone oh. that listens to the Andy Daly podcast will be aware. <laughs> um, but uh, because I never did... Where, where were you in the world at this point? Were you in Australia? Uh, yeah, I was in Australia. I was in Newcastle. VHS. And my brother and his friends had got really into Eddie Murphy. Okay. Uh, and Raw was just... Everybody was watching... I do remember watching Raw. Yeah. yeah uh, which, in hindsight, had some pretty... <laughs> Oh, yes. Let's yeah. not go back. And I, I, I really – and I can remember like a room full of let's, – let's say a blanket term of straight white boys uh, falling about laughing at some pretty offensive stuff uh, and all of them so insecure in their sexuality. And, of course, yeah, oh, yeah, brilliant. Uh, but that for me was kind of like a, a – because my brother went from that and they all loved, uh, you know, like Beverly Hills Cop and that kind of stuff. But that for me was a springboard into SNL because I sort of saw a videotape at, at it was a local video shop and it was Eddie Murphy's Best of SNL. And then I saw a bunch of other ones and I started watching those. And I got really into American sketch comedy like that and that, that I just loved it. And I could watch even the stuff that I didn't find that funny. Like, you know, I remember watching Gilda Radner for the first time. And I just couldn't stop laughing at her. She, to me, was, like, the funniest. Like, I loved her stuff. Um, and do you, do you now have a, a comic sensibility on exactly what button it was pressing for you as a kid? As yeah, a yeah, yeah. She was, she was an adult child. And I think um, the, the, the sort of the Peter Pan, the adult playing the child, is generally a, a male genre of comedy. You know, generally you sort of get the man who just refuses to grow up. Yeah. Right. So then I saw a woman doing it. I mean, Lucille Ball was doing it 70 years ago, but it just wasn't – you just don't see it as much. And I certainly back then I didn't see it very often. Often the woman was the straight man going, hey, when are you going to just grow up and get a job and stop acting like such a child whilst man is doing said hilarious thing yeah and for me to see the woman being the child the woman being the immature one the woman getting the laughs uh and the man being the straight guy uh that was just really thrilling i i and that was why i loved i mean when i was really young i used to love lucille ball i just thought i love lucy and here's lucy i just adored it because it was a 40 year old woman or 45 however old she was but she was uh, she was playing the child adult, the adult child, that genre of comedy where she's getting into a fix and someone's got to get her out of it. And her husband, Desi Arnaz, was the straight man, you know, and every other comedy that I could th that, that, that I ever saw at that time was the man getting into a scrape and then the woman coming down on him for, you know, oh, now you've wrecked everything. It's just really great seeing a woman fuck everything up. And, you and know. what was the relationship between that kind of dynamic in a sketch or in a, in a sitcom mm. and your place in the world at the time, in your place in your family or your place in school? That's a really great question. Well, it, it made me feel like who I was and how I felt 
was something I could use to my advantage. Like it sort of, because I didn't quite fit in and I didn't, like there was something a bit off kilter with me, you know, socially. I, I never quite knew where I fit and I was a really anxious kid. And, you know, I saw these these comedians uh, who didn't quite fit a mold and they didn't quite fit. They, they didn't look and behave like other women and it was brilliant. It was fantastic. It was their greatest strength. And, yeah, that was a bit of, a, I suppose, a bit of an aha moment for me where I kind of thought I can use this. I can use those feelings and I can, you can occupy a space where you use that to your advantage. You know, it's okay if you don't look and behave like all the other kids or the other girls or the other women because here are these women doing it and it's breathtaking. I mean... Was it more to do with... It's interesting you said with the other kids, mm, with the other girls, yeah. with the other women. Yeah. Did you feel more of an outsider to female friends than you did to kids generally? I felt I, I wasn't, um, you know, I mean, where I grew up, you know, it's right on. Uh, and I've made a lot out is this of this. Newcastle. Is this north yeah, of Newcastle, Melbourne? It's much north of Melbourne. Much north. Yeah. I feel like I've heard, <clears throat> I've been in comedy rooms in Melbourne where someone's been from Newcastle and that's been right. derided. But that ends right. my knowledge right. on the subject. Yeah, it's, it's just a beach town. It's a real, okay. you know, hot, you know, beautiful beaches, like some of those beautiful beaches. Like that's what we're known for. Um, which, as you can imagine, with this complexion was just perfect. Perfect. For the benefit union. of the listener, uh, uh, Sarah is Titian. Yeah, 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 yeah. Kind of like Casper, but with a shock of red hair on top. So you know, it was. And as I say, I feel like I've mined this comedically. So I'm not. I'm not doing material on you here. But uh, I, I, you know, I was, you know, quite a big, you know, overweight, uh, uh, very fair, red hair was not attractive at all to the opposite sex. And, uh, you know, a lot of outings were to the beach in your swimmers. Like, you yeah. know, that's the, that people spend their time walking around practically naked. And, uh, you know, it, it, I, I just – the only way I could find my way into any scene uh, was to kind of get in first and make a joke about me and mock me and then get a good laugh it's just fucking classic comedian techniques but that i would be the funny one that sort of became the thing that i thought oh, i can do that that's sort of my way in and you know take the piss out of me and how i looked and, and stuff and that you know it, it's a really it's a really it's the first thing a comedian walks out and goes i know what you're thinking and then mm -hmm. insert you know joke about how they look so it was kind of my my way in. And I actually had a really highly social teenage years. Like I had a lot of friends and I was a very social kid and, and I assume I was quite well liked. Uh, but I know as soon as you say that, you're oh, shit. <laughs> um, but, yeah, I always had a lot of friends. Um, uh, I never had boyfriends. I, I just and – I, and it's almost like I was too scared to even try or even – you know, if I liked someone, if I liked a boy, I just kept it to myself so much because the thought that they'd like me back was too absurd. So, you know, I mean, my parents certainly didn't have to worry about any teenage pregnancy issues with me. Uh, so that was, I don't know, I, but I sort of felt like I, I, it was okay because I felt a way to control what for me was a very anxiety-ridden, unpleasant feeling, but I sort of worked it from a comedy angle and it sort of became funny but you know did you do you think as a teenager you you recognized the influence of uh lucille ball no. and, and the rest of it do you, do you think there was a set like when did you first go oh hang on i'm doing what i've seen 
other women do? I only started to notice it a couple of years ago when I, I, I wrote a few articles and it was one, I mean, you know, around Edinburgh, you know, you, you get thousands of... <laughs> Quickly, think of a thing. Yeah. Turn it into a thing. Yeah, yeah. 500 words do, or Do you less. want anyone in that theatre? <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> We're not paying you, but we want 500 words yeah. on any topic. Yeah. And I found myself, I would, you know, I, I sort of came back to Lucille Ball quite a lot because um, I followed her careers with such interest. I mean, by the time I got interested in her, she was already dead. I mean, she died in 1989. Um, and so much of what she did was just so groundbreaking. I mean, she was a powerhouse businesswoman. She took over a studio when, you know, she took over Desilu Productions. She was the CEO of the company. There's footage of her on YouTube. And we all know Lucille Ball, you know, in the, doing the, 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 the grape crushing scene barefoot, being a clown or pie in the face stuff. It's footage of her chairing the 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 um the what is it the shareholders meeting of of Desi Lu Productions and she's got her glasses there and she's shutting people down and asking questions and I was just like holy shit you know like yeah. this woman this incredible and and she was so uh, she was so going against the grain of what was expected of a woman in the nineteen fifties and and everything about the show was you know her trying to bust out of domestic drudgery you know and. I don't know. I, I suppose the more I wrote about her, the more I kind of recognised how much she affected me, certainly at an early age, because she was just this alternate path, I, I guess. So when it came to you first, talk about the first time that you put some stand-up together. Did you ever, did you ever dabble in sketch? Did you no, ever, never, no. no. Uh, I hated I, – I tried improv and I hated it uh, because uh, – my anxiety would go through the roof and I just couldn't think of anything to say. So, and I can't, to this day, I'm a pretty lousy improviser. Uh, for me, the written word is everything and it's, you know, I, I work really hard on every word in every sentence to get it exactly right. Just just to pause on that for a second, you, you mentioned that being an anxious kid yeah. and the anxiety of improvising. I was a very anxious kid. Really? I don't like to improvise. Yeah. <laughs> I, don't, I yeah. don't naturally go towards it. It's one of yeah. those things I go, oh, I should really do a course. Yeah. Mm, I'm probably not going to get around to it. Mm. I wonder, given that improvisers are often some of the happiest people I talk to on this show because right. they never have to fucking write nothing. <laughs> um, they, uh, and I just wonder about the, the ability to let go yes. and to free fall in improv and yeah. whether... There's a relationship between that and the the child who considers themselves an outsider. Yeah. Obviously, lots of outsiders become improvisers, I guess. Yeah. But I just wonder about that it's just because anxiety's come up a couple of times. I wonder about the 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 safer aspects of the written word, yeah. whereby it's prepared in advance and you yeah. can trust it and rely on it. Yeah, uh, absolutely. I. Um I remember I, I entered the, the my first stand up gig was at university when they they did like a, a student competition an open competition it was called five minute noodles and I entered twice and pulled out on the day both times I came up with spurious oh sore throat or you know I just like I cannot do this and uh, I, eventually my friend kind of was like you're going to go and do it it's going to be fine and I actually prepared really hard for it you know I I, I the other two times when I'd cancelled on the day, I didn't prepare for it, but I did. This time I really worked hard on a five-minute set and I timed it and I learned it. And I got to the bar and it was rammed. 
I mean, it probably it was probably the size of this room, but it's probably <laughs> yeah. this tiny room. But in my head, it was like the Colosseum. You know, it was huge. Um, and the way I felt, I actually considered going to a payphone and doing a bomb threat to the building so it'd have to be evacuated, so I wouldn't have to do it. The anxiety was so bad that I I've had that feeling sometimes. Like first when I first started, where I've thought if I crash the car on the way to the gig, it, I wouldn't be upset because it may not have a good reason to not go on stage because I'm so panicked about this gig. So I you know I went to this gig and I was so frightened and I threw up uh, beforehand and uh, I was in the toilets just you know my I just it was like it was a physical reaction of of absolute terror. And I can't really remember what happened. It went okay. I stuck to the script. I stuck to every single word. And that was my lifeline. That was, you know, the only thing that I could think of were the words that I had memorized. Uh, And it went okay. Like I made it through to the next round. I think maybe in the overall competition I came third or something. I don't know. What What was the content? The content, I can only remember... It's not good stuff. Do you mean the content of my first set? Yes. What what were the subjects? What were the subjects? Was this you trying to do raw? <laughs> Was yeah. you trying to do Eddie Murphy? Oh like, god! Oh, <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, I did a, I did a. No, uh, I did. Uh, I did some stuff about there was a thing that I'd seen in a mag- like it was just because I I mean I was nineteen I mean I hadn't done anything I had no you know I think it was stuff that I'd seen in magazines a bit of pop culture stuff a few celebrity jokes. You know, I mean, it was like joke writing 101, really. Um, And it went okay. But what I took away from the whole experience is what got me through that was the power of what I had written and worked on. That's what got me through it. And that sort of, for me, felt like it was really what I found really uh, interesting was as terrified as I was, I was absolutely exhilarated because I had a microphone and I was talking and for better or for worse... I had a voice right there and then, you know, I, I had a room full of people listening and some of them didn't laugh and, you know, sometimes it can backfire and people can really not like you. But in that moment, I, I felt, uh, like people heard me, uh, like really heard me. It's a really weird thing to describe. And I think sometimes I, that's, you know, something we, you know, when you think about what, what, what do I personally get out of this job? And uh, did you ever see the movie Mr. Saturday Night with uh, Billy Crystal? I've never seen it. So it's, it's, it's a good film. It's a sort of film that I think only really resonates with comedians. I'm not okay. sure how it went at the box office. Generally, stand-up movies don't do that well, I think. But there's a line in it. That's, um, it's an approximation of the line. And um, the mother is trying to explain to the daughter why her father's always on stage and he's always doing gigs. And she says, your father needs that extra bit of love that he can only get from a room full of strangers. And that was just a line that really, I was like, fuck, that's, you know, that's kind of, I think, what I felt, you know, in those initial stand-up days. It's just that extra bit that you can only get from a room full of strangers. Can you just drill a bit deeper down into into what that means to you? Because I certainly experience my own version of that, and I right. think a lot of comics do. Yes. Was there love lacking in your no. home environment? No. 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 Really so, secure. Really loved. So what is that? I don't. Is know. it just titillation? Is it just kind of like being love bombed? Is it? Was there a need for it? Or, or I think everybody has a need for it. I mean, and I had a really secure upbringing. I feel like I should make that clear. I was. I always felt really loved. 
Um, and, uh, you know, the nights when I'd come home and cry my eyes out because, you know, I was, like, I was in love with some guy and he didn't even he didn't even know that I existed. Or when he did come to talk to me, it was, can you get me in with your friend? You know, she's hot, you know. So that that's the way, just always. And I'd come home from these parties and I'd cry my eyes out to both of my parents and they would tell me how much they loved me. You know, like I really... Um, so, so so even that's one of the most secure upbringings I think anyone has dared to reveal on yeah. this show. I'm sure other people have had similar, but um, it's almost like as a comedian, you probably want to conceal that because you might not be thought of as part of the gang. Oh, well, yeah, no. It's, <laughs> but, uh, I, I mean, I, I kind of – I love talking about that now because, you know, I've got, a, I've got, you know, I've got kids and I, I know that at some point, you know, I'm going to have one or both of them crying their eyes out because that person has just trampled on their heart, you know, and I, I kind of think, yeah, get it out there, talk about yeah. it. Yeah. So I don't know. I mean, uh, it's, it certainly wasn't a lack of love at home. I think it was um, – I found that when I did improv, uh, I'd get so panicked that I couldn't think of the funny thing to say in the moment. But then when I had time and space to calm myself down, think it through clearly, walk out to the microphone and do it at my own pace – I sensed that I had it in me to do really well. Like, I, in an like off stage, I was funny. In an improv game, I fucking sucked. Like in improv games, I was dreadful. But if I had that time to prepare and think it through and put together a progression that five minutes in length, I knew I could. I knew I could make it good. So that gave it was a control freak thing. It's certainly, and I think most stand ups are control freaks because. We write, direct, perform. We do the whole thing on our own. And I think we kind of like it that way. When you say make it good, let's mm. talk about making something good. Let's talk about your your show, which I saw, which was excellent. I was going to say good for the sake of the thing, but I'm not <laughs> going to. It wasn't you. good. <laughs> Fuck you too. <laughs> for the sake of the sentence, which was good. It was an, it's an excellent show. Thank it's you. a meaningful show. It's You're not clobbering people over their head with the meaning and it's constantly funny. Thanks. Brilliant characterization. All of those all of those things. It's good. Thank you. <laughs> it's a good show. <laughs> Two and a half stars. Yeah, yeah exactly. Thank per- you. Per- I always remember on someone's poster years ago, perfection, four stars. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Um, it's an it's an excellent show. So Thanks. what 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 through the through the, the the prism of that show, let's talk about what makes good stand up as far as you're concerned. In in your own, like when yeah. when is your own stuff to your satisfaction? Yeah. What is it about your stuff that you go good? Yeah. Um, it's weird. That's what I like, and and what I like. I really love traditional stand up. I don't do traditional stand up, but I adore it. Like. Uh, you know, we've all got those things that we just we YouTube to sort of just zone out. I always YouTube either SNL, and I don't care what era of SNL I'll watch. I love it. Yeah, and, you know, if you, you hit a bad sketch, you just click on to the next one. You know, like, I love that. I, I just love the sheer volume that has come out of that factory, you know, and, and what it's produced. Uh, but I love watching... Uh, Ellen DeGeneres, you know, like old Ellen DeGeneres, like when she was on Johnny Carson, you know, that kind of stuff. Uh, Jerry Seinfeld, of course. Um, uh, who else do I love? I love, oh, my God, Jiminy Glick is like, do you know? I have never seen any Jiminy Glick. Jesus Christ. I mean, it makes me laugh so much 
that it, and I've seen all of them. I've seen every single one of them on YouTube. There's nothing okay. that he's done that I haven't already seen, okay. and I'll still okay. just type in Jiminy Glick and just go, oh, I'll watch that <laughs> one again. It's the funniest thing. I, I just love it, right? Um, that is nothing like what I do. It is just, you know. Um, so I suppose, uh, you know, and it's also different because, you know, what I'm into, I'm not going to watch it for an hour. I'm looking for short grabs, whereas you know that with a fringe show, you're asking people to give you their attention for an hour. Um, they're not there to they're, – they're not – generally they're not there to see you do a bunch of jokes because they sort of want to see something a bit different. If they wanted to see a bunch of jokes, they could easily go and see Michael McIntyre. Like I'm not the person you go to see if you want to see a bunch of jokes. So I kind of feel like I've got a huge amount to play with when I do a fringe show. Like um, I can muck around with genre. Uh, I can have – I can have bits of the show that are, that are a bit more emotional, a bit sad. I can puncture those moments and make them funny again. Like I, I can really sort of go to town when I do The Fringe because I think that's what people – I think that's why we're all here. I think that's why we've gathered in Edinburgh for a month. Um, and, you know, this is this – is, God, I've, I've been doing solo shows since 2001. I think this is my 11th solo show. Uh, so – when I'm writing the show, I'm thinking I'm in a certain headspace personally. I'm going through things in my own life personally that I, I want to hopefully make some meaning of. You know, like I, I, I feel like, you know, what I do and the way I interact with my art is how I make sense of the world. So I want to bring those things to it. I certainly want it to be funny. I don't want it to just be a, a sad monologue. Like, mm-hmm. you know, I'm not in the drama section. I am... To all intents, I am my background is stand up, so I want it to be funny. Um, but I also want to see what I can. I want to see what I can do. You know, like um, with this show, I, I, I had this idea of ending on this short story uh, to, to tie it all up together. Like to go, here's a bunch of true stories, and now I'm going to end on a fiction. I'm going to end on a, a story about an astronaut. And I kept thinking throughout sort of June and July as I was writing it, I was thinking, I just don't know how to make this work, but I really – I can see it in my head. I know exactly how I want it to be. And it was almost like I had to – you know, there's that thing with sculpting. You've got to chip away the bits that aren't the sculpture. You've got to get rid of the bits of stone that aren't the sculpture. And there was this sort of moment where I felt I, I tied it all together and I had the story about the astronaut and it played into all the themes of the story that I'd, I, of all the stories that I'd included in the show. And I really felt like I wanted to push myself to try to, to, to make that work. I just thought, what a neat ending to a show. Like I was really excited at the idea of ending in outer space, looking down at planet Earth, having done a bunch of anecdotes that jumped around from 19... 80 through to 2017 it just felt right i felt i think if you're going to do that the fringe is the place to do that you, yes. there's no other place that i can think of where i'd have the opportunity to work in something like that i just don't know where else 
So this is Sarah. More from her in a moment, of course. A uh, couple of things. I'm going to stop saying all of the, the forward slashes and mentioning different areas of my website. It seems crazy. I think I should be able to trust you to navigate it. So you can go to comedianscomedian.com to find out about my tour, which is coming up in spring this year. If you're in the UK or Ireland, then I might be coming to a town or a city near you or possibly a village in one strange case. So go along to comedianscomedian.com, find out all about the tour. And yeah, I've, I've been re uh, I've been reappraising the website and I've got a lot of um, uh, exciting new stuff on there for you to download. So if you are new to the show or if you're someone who's very familiar with it, there's a load of really useful links there at the homepage on comedianscomedian.com, including how you can hook up with various hook up is the wrong word, but connect with in a very uh, gentle Internet way. Um, connect with other members of the Comedians Comedian podcast community via Facebook and all sorts of exciting places like that. So. Uh, T-shirts. Some of you will have got the T-shirts. They were available from ComediansComedian.com. There was a forward slash, but I no longer say that. I've changed. Um, they're with the printer now, so hold your horses. I've had a couple of emails from people saying, I ordered this at the beginning of October. Where is it? The way the T-shirt post-sale works is that you ordered in October. I've sent them off in November, and they're with the printers now. They will be in existence properly and in my grubby paw on the 1st of December, and I will be posting them out to you then. So hold your horses, please. Hold your skeletal shiny silver horses. Um couple of bits of correspondence before we move on. Um, a couple of emails from people who very kindly donated to the show. You can do that too at comedianscomedian.com. Uh, you can, uh, I, I wanted, I want to be able to accept donations in Bitcoin. Everyone's excited about Bitcoin, even when it drops in value massively. Hey. It's a great time to buy Bitcoin. So if you would like to donate in Bitcoin, I hope that opportunity will be available to you soon. At the moment, you can donate with uh, a regular weekly, uh, sorry, a regular monthly subscription of however much you like, or a one-off payment um, in support of the show of however much you like as well. Um, these, are, these are some emails from people who, you, you get the opportunity to leave a short message with a donation, but people often email me at the same time and go, this is why this specific number was important to me. Um, I had a very funny email from uh, someone one who shall remain nameless, who is an English comedian working in France, who is undergoing some sort of creative crisis, which maybe if uh, if our uh, email conversation becomes protracted, I may one day tell you about. Um, but uh, it's uh, it's it's quite a fun quandary. And I can't tell you any more about it because I haven't asked him if it's okay to talk about it. These, however, I can mention. This is an email from Sharon, who just wanted to say, the original D Hunter episode, deep, moving, outstanding. Definitely one of my favourites. It was a masterclass. I don't think I've ever heard more silent silences. That is high praise indeed, Sharon. Thank you. I felt they were pretty silent silences. And I think that's a really lovely way of describing some of the energy in the room. And I'm very glad that that came across in the interview. It was very, very exciting um, for me to be a part of that and obviously some very contentious stuff as well we've been having a big debate at the uh, the comedians comedian facebook group um as to whether that episode required a trigger warning for some of the language used either in reported speech or just speech um and uh, i will be taking action accordingly but um so you can go on there and, uh, and enter that debate if you like she goes on it's not enough you remember after this episode i was talking about um my feelings that I need to stand up and be counted as a feminist and as a person who thinks that uh, men are often fucking horrible to women and uh, and should be called out on it and uh, and we should all as men try and identify when our friends are doing it, when people we know are doing it, when we ourselves are starting down a path which could easily end up in behaving in less than a, a human way. And um, she goes on, it's not 
enough to assume your support of the righteous argument is obvious or adequate. To speak up, however quietly, is the best way to show who you're standing alongside. It's not always easy, and as you recognise, you're not saving anyone or speaking on anyone's behalf but your own, but support is pretty much always appreciated, especially by those whose voice is heard less often. Very well put, Sharon. Thank you for that. Um, And this is a completely different point from a guy called Ben, who is something to do with the police, but he's very hazy on the details. He sent me a great email about not referring to yourself as lucky to do a job you love. I think that's something that um, a lot of comics say on the show. I certainly feel very lucky to to be doing this job. And in it, he said, uh, I just wanted to say, as someone who used to work in a totally different industry, which had various advantages, including much better salary... Aren't there a lot of people... This is separate. This is me again now. Aren't there a lot of people out there who used to do something better paid and chucked it? Lots of them seem to be listening to this show and getting in touch with me. So if you're in that position, maybe you'd like to tweet at me, at ComComPod, and we'll do a Twitter game along the lines of who has had the most, the biggest financial schism from a job that they uh, uh, hated but that paid well to doing a job that uh, they love but pays badly. What are the... You don't need to tell me the numbers, but if you could tell us your salary as a fraction... And send it in to Career Fractions, hashtag Career Fractions, at ComComPod on Twitter. That'd be interesting. Sorry, I've distracted from his email. He says, I now work in a role which I genuinely really enjoy and get a huge amount of personal and professional pride from. You make your own luck in this world. Um, And he says some nice things about me. That's not luck. He says that's work, graft, sacrifice. People tell me I'm so lucky to do the job I do, but it didn't fall into my lap. I worked long and hard to do what I do just as you did. And we can count ourselves among the few who do jobs we love. We get up each day and are excited about work, but that's not luck, Stu. That's drive and focus and graft. I mean, I also feel lucky, but I do get your point, Ben. Um, So thank you. Um, That is it. Apart from two free things for you. Yes, you. Um, Please do join the mailing list. You can join that at comedianscomedian.com. If you would like to receive the secret unreleased video of me attempting to record a set at a late night sold out Edinburgh charity gig. I think I referred to this obliquely in an episode during August. Um... I basically tried to record an audition set for an American TV show at uh, an Edinburgh charity gig, which was really funny and fun and underground and oversubscribed. It was at Monkey Barrel in Edinburgh, which is a brilliant club to which I'm returning in uh, next year, early next year, for my tour show. It was so much fun. The the lineup was unbelievable. And uh, it, I basically tried to... I don't want to tell you too much about it because I want you to see it and see what unfolds. But I'm trying to record a set as an audition thing. Um, the compere, Mr. Daniel Kitson, me neither, uh, he, <laughs> he, uh, he saw that we were filming and saw that I was filming expressed a desire to know what was going on and then brought me on and events ensued and the audience got really involved in a really fun improvising way it was just one of those uh, evenings where everyone just invented the same joke together at the same time and it is really worth seeing i'm not going to put it up online um, but if you join the mailing list i will send it to you at some point uh, as a little queen's christmas message during december and um, so do join the mailing list for that at comedianscomedian.com and make sure everybody that you're subscribed to this podcast i'm just going to explain in brief how this works and why if you're subscribed to the podcast then you get the episodes immediately you don't need to find them they 
may pop up in your device or on your laptop or wherever wherever you're listening. And you remember last year I did a little free gift. I gave away my, my 2015 album An Hour and uh, I put it up on the podcast feed and gave away something like 18,000 copies of it and received an absolute barrage of very positive and warm messages from those that received it. I'm not going to give away that many this time, but I thought what I could do as a fun thing is one day during late December chuck it up there watch the numbers roll up and give away a thousand copies and then whip it off again and pop it up for sale um on the uh, on the bandcamp page that's connected to the website so i'm going to do that so if you're subscribed depending on i might try and do it at an awkward time of day as well depending on i don't know how it works does your device have to be switched on i'm not sure but it's going to be on the rss feed so you want to be subscribed to get it to see if you'll be one of the lucky ones who gets a little christmas treat of last year's uh, a tour show compared to what I am of course touring the new show like I mean it uh, later and you can find out about that in the one address to which all of your attentions uh, will be directed that is all of that let's get back to the rest of this conversation with isn't she brilliant Sarah Kendall <laughs> said um uh mining like mining your own experience yeah and you also said making meaning from and it's, yeah. i think that's those are really interesting ways of looking at like one of the things i've thought i'm on my seventh uh, solo show this yes. year yes. and something i suppose i used to worry about that i don't anymore but i used to because I, i'm very much a i'm each show is an attempt to solve a thing in my life you right, know, or, or, right. kind of, or to to deal with something yeah. i don't think i've thought of it like making meaning from i think that's a really interesting way of putting it um but I, I think in the early, you know, seven years ago, six years ago, when I was making those first few shows, I think I probably worried that I would run out of things. Mm -hmm. And I think we've seen it's something that's come up on this show with various people I've spoken to. And it's something we've seen certain acts where you kind of go, it's another revelation about your life. And the following year, it's another revelation about your life. And right. like I, as an audience member, I'm feeling nervous for the comedian thinking, what else can he reveal? Right, <laughs> what else right, can right. she talk? You know what I mean? Right. Um, so... I suppose the idea of making meaning from a thing, does that, does that sort of um, take the, the fear out of the idea of, oh, stuff better happen to me? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I, I also think, um, I mean, I'm, I'm 41 now, and I first came to the Fringe when I was 25. And what's happened to me in that time... Um, I was talking to, to someone, I was talking to, to uh, another performer about this, uh, that by the time you get to your 40s, you've, you start to get some scuff marks. You start to get some bruises and dints on you. Shit's happened. No matter what life choices you've made, um, things are starting to – like if you had kids – uh, you're exhausted. You might be worried about you, there might be something. Uh, you might have a kid who needs support. You might have a kid who's sick. Uh, if you're married, you might have had a divorce. If you're not married, you might think, shit, I want to get married. I'm running out of time to get married. If you haven't had kids, you might be thinking, shit, I'm losing the window of time to get to, to, to have kids. So all these choices and all the groundwork that you lay in your 20s and 30s, around your 40s, it all starts to have its impact on you in, in all the various ways it can. And no one's got it right. No one's entirely happy. Um, I look around me and I see all the people who I sort of started out with and they're doing shows about their divorce and they're doing shows. Like, so I don't think you've got to hunt for revelations. I think life knocks you around a bit. And I think if you're not making sense of it, what are you, 
what do you want out of you know we're doing a job where we have an opportunity to really fucking explore it and make it funny where we can and maybe you know illuminate maybe if there's anything i can say that i've learned that can illuminate something for someone else i really want to share that i feel like this kind of you know if i can say something that makes you feel better about a thing that's happened to you because i've had shit go down in my life too that 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 gives me enormous sense of uh joy that a room full of people can come together and feel something and identify that yeah i've got scuff marks too i've fucking been knocked about that the last couple of years um you know i mean i i, I it, it's it's kind of weird. i don't i don't know i feel yeah, I also. I mean, like two years ago, I had like a. I just had. I had a. I had a nervous breakdown. It came out of no. It came out of nowhere. I, up until that point, I had no sort of sign that I that that could happen to me. And then it happened in the way that people sort of describe it, where it's it's like it, it comes upon you and you go, "What the fuck is happening to me?" And I totally dropped my bundle, you know, and and sort of had to build it back up from there. And I think. You know, when when people sort of talk about um, issues like that, you know, when I was 30, I'd sort of go, oh, God, poor you. It sounds dreadful. But now I'm like, yeah, yeah, no, I've had that happen. Yeah, yeah. That, that happened to me, yeah. Uh, so I think, um, you know, when I do a show now, I kind of think, you know, I not only do I want to make sense of it, but I, I want to um, – the thing that I love, the thing that I love most uh, with, with doing a show like my show is um, uh, making it, um, you know, in, in any of those bits, in any of those scenes where there's a sad thing, uh, there's also a really big laugh uh, because I don't think that sad things are just empirically sad and joyful things are empirically joyful. I think life turns on a dime constantly and – you can crack up laughing in a really sad moment and you can burst into tears when you're really happy. And that for me is kind of what my shows are about. My shows are about, you know, you you can go to a really sad place and you can also burst out laughing in that sad place. Because that to me is what life feels like. That feels quite authentic to me, that it, everything's happening at once. It's not, life doesn't work in genre, you know. What does it look like? What does a nervous breakdown look like? I mean, I've had, a, I've had panic attacks in the yeah. past, once or twice. And I remember being a kid and hearing that someone's dad had had a nervous breakdown yeah. and being really intrigued. Yeah. And as quite a wobbly kid, I probably thought, oh, I wonder if I'll ever have one of those. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Oh, well, I suppose, it, I mean, I, mean it's, I, I imagine it's different for anyone. Um, but for me, it was really acute. It just... Um, sort of uh, got into a, a cycle where uh, I couldn't sleep and then that was agitating what was already a quite sort of – I was quite anxious and I was a bit – I would say I had a sort of, you know, low-grade depression at that point, but it was the sleeplessness. I, I was so anxious I couldn't sleep and then uh, I'd be afraid that I couldn't get to sleep. So I'd lie there getting afraid that I couldn't get to sleep and I just went on this sort of spiral of sleeplessness and it just ended up. I I literally couldn't stop crying. I just couldn't. And I'd try to speak, and all that would come out was crying. And I'd try to get words out, and I, you know, and I I I, ju- I, I it was a physical reaction. It was just, and I think it's the body's way of going. You need to stop interacting with the world just because you're not 
you're not functioning properly. It was almost like my body was just going, you need to stop. And I felt like I hadn't, I hadn't stopped, like really stopped uh, for years, for over a decade. And, and I, that's in terms of both professional work. Yeah, you've been everything. turning over an hour. Yeah. You're always yeah. in that Edinburgh and cycle. And two kids. And, and being a parent of two children. Having two kids, doing festivals, doing shows, uh, worrying about shows, writing shows, previewing shows, bringing up your kids. Like everything just, it's like everything, I just, it's like I snapped in half. Uh, and yeah, it was, it was a really... Um, it was really frightening, but it gave me a really huge respect for listening to uh, listening to what your body and your heart's trying to tell you. Because you know, I've spent most of my life. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Life shutting it down. Like, you know, so I kind of thought... I'm kind of paying the bill for shutting it down for so long, I think. And what, given that you were presumably at that point two years ago, you were in the cycle, in the creative cycle, just to bring it back to yeah. the, the effect on your work. Yeah. Did you consider work? Were you able, I mean, when you said, oh, you've got to sort of shut off life as a parent, yeah. you can't. Yeah. No, as, exactly. as a performer with deadlines, you can't. Yeah. So what was your... Work-wise, I could. Okay. Work-wise, I could shut down. I just put a, I just had to put a red line through everything. Which, uh, as it turns out, no one gives a shit. Ah, I was so hoping you were going to say that. As <laughs> yeah. soon as you said red line through everything, I was like, and please tell us that was yeah. all right. Yeah. Oh, look, uh, you know, there's that saying about, you know, the graveyards are full of people who are indispensable. It's, oh, I've never heard that. I love it. Uh, yeah, terrific. But it's true. If you can't turn up, people just go, oh, oh, we'll get someone else. Like, that's all that happens. No one gives a shit. It's really, it's like a little taste of dying where you go, oh. Yeah. Turns out I am I am I am replaceable. Uh, oh so, God! This just made me think. Every time, every time it's happened a few times now. Now that Facebook is ubiquitous, and now that yeah. sometimes we lose people in the yeah. industry, yeah. and someone says, you know, and you find out on Facebook, yeah. and um, you can't help but think. What will what will Facebook? What will so, not social media itself, but what will the the method by which a lot yeah. of people who know me yeah. at a remove? Yeah. We all communicate through that method. What will that say about me? And it will yeah. be exactly like that. Yeah. Turned out not indispensable. Oh, yeah, everyone just moves on. So the the work thing was nothing. I mean, with parenting, I just uh, it was okay because you know I. Um, once I'd sort of, you know, after a couple of weeks, I'd had some sort of, you know, I'd, I'd got some sleep, you know, yeah. going going and getting some help. And the support of my family, you know, everyone kind of stepped in and helped. And 
you know, uh, my family's the only reason that I got through that. And, you know, for those couple of weeks where I was really shaky, I had family to, to, to help. And I think, you know, I, I could not have done that specifically without my mum. She was really the reason that you sort of realise, my God, being a mother is really, you know, if I can do that for my daughter, if I can do that for my daughter, I would be so... You know, or it, it it was the greatest. Um, I'm still, I'm getting a bit choked up. It was really, you know, the kindness. Uh, so yeah, it was. Um, <clears throat> but that 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 for me was just. Uh, I, it was a real opportunity to stop and breathe, and I hadn't, and I realised I hadn't done that for a long time, and too much. I had asked too much of myself, and. You know, I've always had that thing where, you know, you just keep putting one foot in front of the other, just keep going. And it's really interesting for me, sort of after all of that and who I've sort of I, – I, it wasn't so bad. I'm not going to act like – not act, but I don't have an ongoing kind of, uh, you know, like it was a really acute come on of a, of a, a meltdown, a proper meltdown. And um, I feel like the person I am after that has is a bit altered. I've I've just I've just slowed it down. I just I don't have to live on my nerves. I don't have to be that person. It's interesting. This might not be related at all, but at the very beginning when I did a sound check and asked what you had for breakfast, you did say, I've made a decision I'm gonna have really good breakfast. Yeah. And I wonder if that's part of that kind oh, of totally. self care. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. You know, like I don't I used to just sometimes I would just get a piece of bread and just eat that on the way out. I don't. Now I actually, you know, I get a bit of crumbled feta, get squeeze some lemon, do some chili flakes. It's a thing, you know, like it's okay. You can stop and make, you can take your, fuck it, it takes eight minutes. Make yourself a nice breakfast for Christ's sake, you know. Uh, Isn't that funny? It takes eight minutes. That's like a, pers- a self-care person trying to convince <laughs> yeah. their workaholic self that it's fine. Yeah. Eight minutes is allowable. Yeah. <laughs> you don't have to drink a pint of milk and go oh that'll be all right that'll get me through till 10 so yeah i just um i don't know i think um you know i i these these things these scuff marks these bruises and these dents that you get on you um i think you know I, i feel so closely connected to my work and and i feel very emotional about my work and if I'm not integrating those things, if I'm not integrating, and then those things that mean something to me, um, well, what the fuck am I doing? You know, I might as well just go and, you know, I, I, I don't know. I, I, I don't know who I am if I'm not talking about those things. And certainly, you know, certainly there are aspects of my show, the things that sneak up on me with my show that can sometimes really, uh, you know, the, the thing I talk about with my friend who's, uh, she has cancer and it's come back. That for me is the really upsetting part of the show. That's very fresh in our family, and um, you know that's that's a tragedy. That's that's you know when I look at um, all the things that I talk about in my show, that's the thing that I find. There are some nights where it really sort of I got to uh, get you know talk about it and talk about it calmly without um, getting too upset because that's. But that's life, isn't it? You know, like that's, that's, you know, um, I, I don't mean that in some sort of dismissive, hey, that's life. I don't mean it like that. I mean, um, my show is as much about, um, uh, things as sad as that 
as it is about, um, you know, funny stuff that my brother's done. You know, I've got to integrate all of those things. Otherwise, it doesn't feel like it has any meaning to me, you know. So now I'm aware that we, we have this space for a limited amount of time. So mm. I'm, I'm going to try a, a different way of asking about technique because I'm interested in your writing and I'm interested in the craft. Mm. So this may go nowhere, but I've right. got an idea for a question, mm. which is if you had to talk to, which is how many shows do you say? 11 shows. This is my 11th. Yeah. If you now <clears throat> were to speak to yourself at the beginning of that process, writing that first one, yeah. if you could tell yourself three things that you've learned, like specific things about technique, three things you had to learn or three, you know, yeah, yeah. ways that you could speed up the learning. Yes. What would they be? Uh, and they can be as little or specific yeah, as sure. possible. Any kind of crafty technique things I'm sort of interested in. Get the serious themes sorted before you sweat the jokes too much. That for me has been like the biggest learning curve of writing is that um, – if you get the meaningful stuff down pat and you get your theme sorted and you get the sort of visual motifs of the show sorted, get those down pat and sweat the jokes. You can sweat the jokes at the last minute because getting that basic structure and getting that really um, strong foundation to work from, that's the really hard bit, I think. And if you do it the other way around, you have a ramshackle of – Bits that don't belong in there, but you've kept them in because they get a good laugh. I wish you could have said that to me seven years ago. I know, yeah, I, I totally know. agree. Yeah. I totally yeah. agree. Yeah, and you can lose something that's a big laugh if it doesn't fit the show because it's going to stand out like dog's bollocks. You know, if you just suddenly go off on a thing about Baywatch because it's, God, I've got this fucking great bit about Baywatch. <laughs> and you go, yeah, but your show's about, fuck, you know, whatever your show's about. So I would say don't. Don't spend June and July desperately trying to get as many laughs as you can and, and then peg them all together on, on this weird kind of Frankenstein's monster. Uh, you need to get the what are you t what is your show about? What is your show about? Keep working that. Keep working that. That's that's crucial. I did uh, when I was in high school a, a poet who I couldn't stand, uh, Yeats. I never really liked Yeats. I found him very sort of. Well, I'll put it this way. I did the, Of all the poets I did, my favourite was Philip Larkin, who was a real populist. And mm -hmm. you'd read the poem the first time around and you'd get it. Mm -hmm. he's, like a, he's like the stand-up of poetry. It's yeah. A, it's accessible. Yeah, yeah. Really accessible. I love Philip Larkin. Because it was accessible did not make it any more power, any less powerful. You know, you'd get it the first time around and you'd still be devastated. You go, that's a brilliant fucking poem. And I get it. And then I studied Yeats, and Yeats was just – you had to have a PhD in Byzantine art to get what he was talking about. And that was almost the arrogance of it, that, you know, you, you had to be a scholar to understand what he was talking about. And I hated it. But he said – I remember reading about this guy and writing essays about him, and he said, God, I can't believe I've remembered this because this has been like the guiding light of what I do. Hammer your thoughts into unity. That was his thing. Hammer your thoughts into unity. And that, for me, is absolutely what um, – certainly what I do with my shows. What are my themes? What are, what are, the, what are the recurring visuals? What are, what are the flags in the sand that I'm giving the audience as I guide them through this story? Um, how am I helping them to understand the guts of what I'm talking about? So that would be the first thing I'd say to myself. Uh, second thing um, – and I'm still learning to do this myself. Um, tr 
try to let those funny bits grow organically. And by that, I, I sort of mean, you know, like when you've got a bit in your show where you go off on a small tangent and um, sometimes you just need to let it breathe a bit slow it down don't rush it you know sometimes you go that's not working they're not laughing i'm not going to do that anymore sometimes you need to just slow it down and and exist in that little tangent that you've created do do you know like um there's a bit in my show where i say uh, uh i'm saying to my daughter that we had a very brave little hamster and then i say to the audience we never tested that by the way we never did like a d-day style landing uh, and that, that's a lot for them to be taking on because yeah. you're going hamster, brave, D-Day style landing, hamster being landed on a beach in Normandy. And I had to really slow it down and physicalize it for that to get the laugh. But the first time I did it, I threw it away and it didn't get a laugh. And it's because I didn't give that little tangent enough breathing room to be its own little scene. Yeah, yeah. I think sometimes we throw these things away, but all you need to do is slow it down and let the scene breathe be the hamster. Be the hamster landing on the beach. Look like a frightened hamster. Don't be afraid to go buck tooth and look like a frightened hamster on a beach in Normandy with a little hamster gun. Whereas I think if I did that like 11 years ago, I would have just gone, that doesn't work and, and let it die. Whereas now I kind of go, no, I know that's funny. Hamster on the D-Day landing, that's funny. So just let it breathe a bit. Just slow it down. Um... I don't know what the third maybe could, for the third thing could I ask you something about mm. the the wording of the jokes the writing because I guess you sit down and write longhand yeah I do. oh yeah I mean I write my shows out word for word and uh I mean by the time it's by the time I get to the Edinburgh Festival it's normally the title of the show version 27 yeah like so um uh oh do you know the third thing that I would say to myself is um Edit, edit, edit. Get rid of, get rid of stuff, um, which is contrary to rule number two. Just let it breathe. Uh, but so much of, um, I think, the writing process is letting go of stuff and going that doesn't work anymore. And you know, letting go of your babies, like kind of going, I really love that bit, but it doesn't fit this show. It doesn't belong in this show. Don't be afraid to rewrite. What you rewrite will almost nine times out of 10 be better than what you had previously. Don't think that, oh, if I get rid of this, I'll never be able to replace it with yes, a better it, bit. It's fair though, isn't it? If yeah. that's why we don't want to kill our darlings is yes. because yes. you go, oh, this, I've got this now. This yeah. can save me. That's yeah. how I feel about that's it. That's right. And it, and it took me this year for the first time, really, did I take a bit which is 100% a good, funny, original thought yeah. and took it out of the show. Great. And the only reason I could do that was because this one um, comedy fan uh, in particular, a woman called Kate, who's fantastic, she saw literally seven of my previews uh, yeah. from month to month. She right. just kept coming just to sort of to see the process move yeah, along. Yeah, yeah. And... Um, and she said, do you know that bit? It's, it's great. It works. But I don't know if it fits in this show. And it was just because, like, I haven't really had a director this year. Yeah. So having someone say that who could, who I felt like, yeah, I'm going to give you the credit yeah. to know what fits and what doesn't. Yeah. And it, it's absolutely right. And, hey, I've got a bit for next year. Yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. You can, at any point in the process, you can just take that paragraph out. And if you don't miss it, then it shouldn't have been there in the first place. If you kind of go, oh, I, I left that out tonight, it made no fucking difference whatsoever, then get rid of it. You know, and I, I think 
that has been, you know, not being afraid to profoundly change the script from preview to preview and not being afraid to kind of go, I'm just going to lose that. I'm just going to lose all of those pages. I'm going to rewrite that. Uh, I'm going to change the order. Keep it as loose and flexible as you can for as long as you possibly can up until you until you start to feel like, yeah, now this is starting to feel like there's a proper foundation here. Um, I was saying to, to my radio producer who I co-write with that I feel like uh, in a really great show, the last couple of lines, it should feel like uh, – you're pulling a little string inside a bottle and on the last couple of lines you pull the string and then a little pirate ship appears. I love it. Right. <laughs> I love it. And they should get that sense on the last on the last line of your show, they should feel it's pirate ship. Like that's the moment that I'm always looking for. And some of my shows have had it and some of my shows haven't. I've tried desperately to find it and I haven't been able to find it. And uh you know in your heart when you've done that line and you've pulled the string and they can see the tiny pirate ship in the bottle. And that's, I think, what we're all looking for. And you've just got to constantly keep going back and changing and rewriting and shuffling until you get that sense of it's a pirate ship. you know. And when I think of all my favourite novels, when I think of the greatest works of literature, those final lines that stick out, you know, said a prayer for the soul of Michael Corleone. You know, you go, it's a pirate ship, of course. You know, it's – so, yeah, that's – and that's what I'm always trying to do. And if I haven't got that line, then something's structurally wrong earlier on. If if I can't come up with that, you know – when someone says to you, I've got a problem with the ending of my show, then you go, well, then you've got a problem with the beginning and the middle of your show. There's no such thing as, oh, it's perfect all the way through. It's just the ending that's <laughs> fucked. <laughs> you know, so that's the really depressing thing is when you go, if the ending doesn't work, I've got to go back and fix all sorts of shit, you know. And, I mean, for me, I, I still think, like, I'm still applying those basic essay writing skills that I developed in high school in the first paragraph, you put forward your proposition about what you think it's about. You do three paragraphs of supporting arguments and then your conclusion. You know, like, that's what we had drilled into us from the age of 14. And I feel like my shows certainly, whenever I'm going, what is wrong with this show? I go, well, let's go back to the first two pages. What's my argument? How am I supporting that argument through the process of my show? What's my concluding paragraph? So... And let's just, let's just talk for a second about that that line of argument because I've seen at the festival this year. Um, I've, I've been up with my family, and so mm, I've seen yeah. far less stuff than I would normally see. Yeah. I feel like I've got to say that to apologise to the <laughs> listeners. <laughs> I've, I've, I've been I'm trying. so flattered. <laughs> yeah. um, but I feel like I've seen some original thoughts, and I've seen some thoughts where I've some in in some people's shows. I've seen thoughts where I've gone. Well, yeah, I think that, but I think that because I think I read the same essay on it that you did <laughs> yeah, that was online. There was a piece right. about that, or a lot of people were writing about that. Right, right, right. How original does the thought need to be for it to be worth making a show about? I think it has to be authentic to you. I don't Auth- think it- authentic rather than original. Yeah, yes. I don't think original. Yeah, there's nothing original. There's no none of us. So there is no originality. No one is coming up with the first thought or the first take on something. But what really stinks is when you go, yeah, that's just not you. You've cribbed that or uh, 
you've seen someone do something like that and you thought that looked pretty cool. And I think you can smell it a mile off. I think if someone, if, if it's authentic and if it's real and if they're feeling it and if if you, like, I always feel every night, because this is a long festival, I always just think before I go on stage, I'm just going to go out and I'm just going to build it from the ground up. Like that's that's the only way I can do it night after night after night is to just go, I'm going to go and build my show brick by brick. Don't panic about I gotta build this thing. Just keep putting each brick in on top of each other. Um, and by the time I get to the end of it, I really, I'm in that space where I really, I fucking, I really care about it. And I think you just know, you know, if someone feels it and they care about it, I think that's just that the authenticity of it is really what matters. I don't really care if somebody says something. I think, well, I've heard that before. What, what would bug me is if I think, well. You just said that to get an effect. You just said that for for an outcome, which then gets down to, um, uh, you know, there's nothing there's nothing more thrill. I don't, you know, no matter what is wrong with a show, when you see somebody standing there unpacking their heart, you just like that's uh, that's what you want. That's what you want as an experience, isn't it? I mean, that's that's why you go to see. I mean, you also go to laugh, and you but you want to feel something. You want. We're trying to make sense of everything all the time, and and uh, the fringe is just a, a whole bunch of people getting on stage and talking about how they interact with the world. So I don't feel like I've seen you much on the circuit of no, late. No. And I don't, and you never know whether that's because you're just not in the same orbits or what yeah, have you. Yeah, yeah. Are you more of a festival yeah. or touring committee? Are you touring yeah. the world? I'm not touring, but um, I just got to a point where, where uh, I was finding I just don't do 20 minutes anymore. Uh, and, and, you know, I can, I can structure my year around doing the festivals and um, getting – you know, gigs at festivals, like getting paid to do my one-hour show at different festivals, as in not for the month, but just, you know, a festival here and a festival there where you do two nights or three nights or whatever. Um, but I just don't want to do 20 minutes anymore. Uh, I don't want to do the late nights. Uh, I feel that when I walk out on stage and see a room full of people on a Saturday night who are pissed, I just don't have anything to say to them anymore. I don't. It doesn't really I, – I don't feel like – I feel like I sort of – so much of when I started was, you know, you work up those skills and they're brilliant skills and you can't learn them any other way. Like I know that there's like a ton of comedy courses you can go on and all that's doing is delaying what you have to do, which is go out night after night after night and learn your craft. And you can't short-circuit that. You can't get around that. You can't do a six-week course and then go, great, now I don't have to – spend 10 years schlepping around the fucking place with, you know, people fucking yelling me off stage and me learning a ton of lessons the hard way. Like, I don't think, I don't, I, I really don't believe that there's, there's a way around that. Um, but I've done that, you know, and I've, I've learned everything that I need to learn from that. I don't, I don't, I don't feel like that's where I want to be anymore. Uh, it's pretty thrilling, like you know. I mean, you know, when because there are certain nights where you go, this could really go either way. Like this crowd is in a fucking space that, but I don't, I don't really see myself as being the kind of act that really suits that environment anymore. You know, I think, I think 
my shows have just they've they've become too storyish and winding and require you to be sober. Like the, you know, I throw a lot at the audience. Uh, in fact, sometimes I kind of think um, in a way that's, you know, I've been staring at the same document for three months, so all of it's all, you know, I know the story backwards, but I'm hitting people with a lot of information and so much of the process of writing my shows is stripping out, like thinning hair, like stripping out so much stuff because I'm throwing too much at the audience, like the, the, I'm giving them too many details to remember and then they remember nothing. So really a lot of... The process of my shows is making sure that I'm giving people recurring images and themes and even sentences and phrasings so that, so you know, I can throw all those things at them, but they've got a, like a rope to hold on to through it. Otherwise, it's sort of a blamange of disparate ideas, you know. So kind of hammering that into unity was is really the, like 50% of the job to make that make sense. Especially especially with this show. I mean, this show, um, you know, when it first started, there was time travel and, you know, it was just so much was happening. And then I thought, I don't need that, you know. I'm going to do six different short stories from six different times of my life. And the way I wanted it to feel was like walking through rooms inside my head. So you'd be in a room that was 2017 and you'd be there for 10 minutes, and then you'd open the door and walk into 1980, and then you'd be there for six minutes, and then you'd walk through another door, and then you're in 2015. And that's and that's kind of how I start each short story. You know, I go, now it's 1980, I'm four years old, boom, you know. So each short story is really clearly delineated as reset, reset, different time, different place, different, you know. What is the outer reach of your ambition for your shows what is if you have over the last 11 years yeah. you've gone from being a circuit comic who started to put hours together to becoming a festival yeah. hour storyteller you know a solo show yeah what's what's the next evolution of that that you're expecting I don't or know. relishing or hoping yeah. for i don't know i do you know uh i i really feel like i'm in a really good space uh, in a lot of ways at the moment. I feel like I've got a lot to say and I've got the tools to express it as opposed to 15 years ago where I had nothing to say and no tools to express that. <laughs> so, you know, that kind of the price you pay for getting older, you know, whilst I'm not thrilled about being 41, it's okay because I kind of feel like I've got – I'm literally – I can't stop talking about stuff and how I feel about things and shit that's making sense to me now. And uh, I've got all these kind of ways that I know how to communicate that. I know how to get that across. I know how to make it funny. Um, I know how to – I have enough control to have quiet bits and the quiet bits aren't because people aren't laughing and it's a disaster. The quiet bits are good. I want them to be quiet. I can – you know, I just feel I feel in a really good. I don't know. I don't know what's next, and that's great. Um, I I don't know. I just feel like I've got all these these. Uh, it's like I've been collecting for for the last twenty years. I've been collecting all these thoughts and feelings and emotions, be they good or bad. And now now I've I, I've I've collected all this data, and now I'm 
processing it. I'm, I'm now in a phase of my life where I'm trying to make some some order out of it, and I think I, in small ways I can. Um, I'm enjoying exploring that. I don't know what the next show will be. I suspect it'll be very different from this one. You know, I, I feel like it's changing a lot from year to year, which feels great. Is there? Do you feel a career or a financial imperative to turn over one hour per year? Yeah, yeah, definitely financial. I mean, and that's good. Like, I have, I have no problem with that. This is a job. I mean, it'd be nice if it was all subsidised and, you know, but we are earning money out of this and you certainly don't want to be doing it at a loss or for free. So, yeah, I mean, this is my job. Um, and as a, as a no longer on the circuit, <clears throat> as a festival <clears throat> act, yeah. to keep paying the bills, yeah. you have to turn over an hour a year. Yeah. Do you, <clears throat> do you ever worry getting to a stage where you go, uh, what will I say? I've got to say something. Yeah. What will I say? Or is there just enough data that you're... Oh, there's enough there, you know. And I, 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 if, if I felt that way, I'd move into another area that's closely within the orbit. Do you know what I mean? Like, we have a skill set from doing stand-up. We have an enormous skill set, you know. And if I kind of went, you know what, I have no show, I'd go and write for someone for a while or I'd go and do some script editing work for someone. Or, like, I don't... You know, for me, I do the Radio 4 show off the back of my Edinburgh show, and that feeds into my audiences coming to see my Edinburgh shows. It's a really cool little circuit, you know. Like, So each Edinburgh show then becomes the series, and then I get more people coming to the show. So that's fantastic. But if I did go, shit, I haven't got, I haven't got a show. I don't want to, you know. I know that there's like a bunch of people I could go and just work for on their projects, and I could bring money in for a year. Like, it would be okay. But it's, I suppose what I'm, the reason I'm, part of the reason I'm asking is that I'm in this cycle now of touring. Yeah, uh, so yeah. I do the show and then I tour the show and yeah. in the second half of the tour I work on the next show and, yeah. and, and it builds and I've been really enjoying it. I've, that's, that is now the plan. Yeah. And, um, and I suppose part of me just feels if I were to skip a year, mm. then the, it's not just the year I'm skipping, it's yes. the year of celebration of the most recent one. Right. It's the going to that particular festival and doing it there in order to do those things exactly. whilst building. Yeah. That's buying me the time to write the new It's like, yeah. oh, shit, it's not yeah. just missing a year. It's yes. like, oh, God, the, you know, the, so the engine is taken to bits and lying on the garage floor. Yeah, yeah. Oh, it's absolutely, and I mean, I, as evidenced by, I took five years off in the middle. So I did 2001 to 2008, took five years off, had kids... Ah. got completely out of the loop, came back for my triumphant return in 2012. No one fucking showed up. I mean, it was holy shit. Like I'd been out of the loop for five years, which I thought was nothing. Whole new generation of comics come through, whole new scene. No one knew who I was. I, I hit the reset button big time presumably whole new load of tropes about what we can do with a show as yeah. well like yeah, if you'd totally. skipped the last five years then we'd have missed i mean i'm i'm not even going to name the things because i think uh i don't want to, to diminish some of the things that have been happening but yeah. i imagine if you've been coming to global comedy festivals for the last five years you've seen it move and we've yes. talked yes. about things yes. we as a community have gone yes. there's that kind of show and there's that sort of structure and yeah. there's that kind of thing yeah. and yeah it would be very easy to five years later be discovering a thing that a lot of people had discovered yeah. five years ago I mean yeah. what what oh god yeah I mean it was uh, it was really a, a real uh, bucket of cold water in the face to sort of come back and people not even know that I was you know, like I'd be meeting younger performers and they'd be like, oh, do you do stand-up? And I was like, yeah. 
you're not the only person that said that to oh, me recently. Shit. I mean, I really, I was like, oh, fuck. Like, that was, that was, that, you know. So, um, you're absolutely right. Like, you're absolutely right to go. If I take my foot off the gas, that's the, that is the tiring part of this job is if you, um, I mean, from a creative perspective, this is a big explosion of ideas and we're all, you know, and, you know, and that's wonderful. The really cutthroat side of this is you're putting up your stall at the market for a month and you get so much business off the back of it, you know, because people come and see your shows, festival bookers, TV people, radio people, you know, from uh, after this festival through to the next festival, you get 11 months of people going, I saw you at the Edinburgh Festival, would you like to come and do, you know, like, you know what I mean? People who you never knew would come in to see your show get in touch in January and go, I saw you at the Edinburgh Festival, we'd like to book you for a thing. So... Uh, you know, you do – it is a fiscal thing as well. And, you know, if you don't do the Edinburgh Festival – I remember Ross Noble saying once um, – something along the lines of he said, no, I'm not going to do Edinburgh this year. I'm just going to – was it Ross? No, it wouldn't have been Ross. Who was it? Some comedian said, I'm not doing Edinburgh this year. I'm just going to sit in my backyard and set fire to £20,000, right? <laughs> uh, and I get that because you do – at the outset of Edinburgh, you're like, oh, Christ, this is this is a lot of money. But then if you don't do Edinburgh, and the years that I haven't done Edinburgh, my earnings are so far down. So you do a huge outlay to do Edinburgh, but the money that you make back is absolutely worth it. And you're out there. People are talking about you. You, you know, you're current. When does the does – so this show won't tour, but you'll, do, you'll make the next Radio 4 show out of this This show. will be the next Radio 4 show. I mean, I'll do a run at the Soho Theatre, and I'll do it at various festivals, but I, because my kids are young, touring is just not – I just can't be gone for that amount of time. I can't sort of be on the road for four nights of the week or three nights a week for three months or whatever the schedule would be. Um. And to be completely honest, I, I wouldn't be playing a really big room, so it's worth it, you know, like I'm not a big enough name. I'd be doing the studio of an art centre and then i kind of go, for what, for the money I'd be making, um, I'd rather kind of just take on other festival bookings and the radio show and that kind of stuff. Like, So, yeah, and also touring makes me really depressed, really depressed. I mean, do you like it? I like it because I haven't done it much. Yeah, I'm I aware of like, oh, this is quite lonely. I fucking hate it. I hate <laughs> it so much. And then you go, well, I got a support act. And you're like, yeah, well, then you're going to be paying yep, extra money. So can't I'd, afford that. No, no, no. <laughs> it'd be you doing two 45-minute sections on your own and then going to a local hotel or whatever on your own, watching telly on your own, shit pillow, waking up in the morning, off to the local train station. It's so depressing. So my my heart can't take it. i just like, oh, fuck it. It's not worth it. And that's the end. <laughs> Thanks so yeah, much. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thanks, Stu. So that was Sarah. Thank you so much to her for coming along. Really fascinating conversation. I, one of those ones where we ran out of time in the venue and I could easily easily have talked to her for another hour or more. Such a brilliant brilliant comedian and a brilliant maker of i don't want to say theater which is crazy because there's nothing wrong with theater unless you're an actor there's nothing there's nothing wrong with theater but you don't want to you don't want to sort of uh, 
degrade the idea of comedy by saying it's theatrical because that often makes people think that it isn't funny she's very funny but it's really good gutsy meaningful stuff as well so brilliant do check out sarah kendall wherever you can and um thanks again to the assembly for letting us record there thanks to you for listening thanks daryl for your uh, inordinate and constant help uh, recording and producing and all the great things you do for me that you recently pointed out to someone uh, to my face that uh, in front of my face that i uh, had even stopped thanking on the podcast <laughs> you're absolutely right and i'm terribly sorry so thanks hashtag thanks daryl and thank you to all the usual suspects i will have the brief little postamble at you just because I'm neglecting some parenthood at the moment and I've got to get back to it but um, that is all for now so comedianscomedian.com to get your hands on a list of the top 10 episodes as recommended as voted for by listeners to the show and also to find out how to join the Facebook group see some of my stuff get yourself a free album all of this kind of lovely stuff um, do beat an indie as they say in Australia New Zealand, where whereabouts says beaded indie? <laughs> I remember, I remember my friend Summer saying beaded indie um, in the sense of kind of get on with it. I don't know Antipodeans. Mm. Speak to you soon. Bye bye for now. So a tiny little postamble, and um, I've been getting a bit anxious. Ooh, I didn't realise I was going to talk about this. I rarely plan these postambles, and. Um, uh they yeah <laughs> um you know they're a bit more honest aren't they if i don't plan them are they or are they just poorly planned i've been really you know i got all happy a little while ago and i was there's stuff in the new show about it and stuff in the previous show about therapy and and uh, happiness and what have you and i never really had deep depression but i had a lot of anxiety and and some of it's been surfacing again a little bit and I, it's really weird seeing myself go through, seeing yourself go through, let's make this not entirely self-centred, but isn't it odd to recognise your own patterns of behaviour and still do them? <laughs> I, I've been procrastinating like a bastard because I've had a couple of big challenges on the horizon i gave a lecture to uh, the leadership in sport conference i was a phenomenal curveball of a guest um that some people I, I went and talked to people about sport and tried to help them learn what they can what they could from the experiences of a, a stand-up comedian it was very satisfying and invigorating sort of experience um but there was that kind of weighing over me in a completely untested what's this going to be like way. There's the the mystery project that some of you know about that um, is now at a stage where I probably shouldn't, shouldn't say anything about it. There's the tour and all the press and promo that I've got to do for the tour coming up. Um, and there's the overhauling of the website and all the, you know, all the myriad things that basically when I'm... When I wake up in the morning, I think to myself, I'll just do that. And then I, I've got to do that. And I've got to do that. I've got to do that. And I've, oh, I've got to fit in some parenting. And then I've got to travel to a gig and back. And I've got to do that. When am I going to do that? And it's just, they've been mounting up. 
They've really been mounting up, and because they've been mounting up, I've then been procrastinating and playing an excellent little game on my phone called Polytopia. Can't recommend that enough. Hey, if anyone's got a deeply addictive um, either I like strategy or tower defence games, this one's strategy. But if you've got some sort of awful game that's going to um, assist in all of our procrastination, I'm very happy to advertise it on the show for money. <laughs> so um, I, I've just kind of found myself, you know, when, you, when you're doing a thing going, what are you doing like i've definitely got to do all this stuff and i'd be all nervous and i'd be sitting on a bus thinking i could at very least i could review some notes i could be writing jokes on my phone or something instead i'm just going i'm just going to play this for half an hour while time slips through my fingers and it's it's just bewildering because i've been enjoying a real period of calm confident energized work and then suddenly i find myself going how am i gonna do this i haven't been freaking out and bursting into tears which is an absolute side of progress but um but i have been slipping into some old nervous habits and i've uh, still still got the old therapist on speed dial keep in the tougher moments i think i'm gonna get back in touch with the guy I haven't done so yet. I'm not holding that up. That's not any kind of a, a measure. I'm not. That's not a goal. Is to like oh, never speak to um, someone that might help. But it, it's more. Um, it's more that I'm sort of calibrating it by, you know, consciously or unconsciously, just sort of thinking, yeah, okay. Um, you know, haven't haven't asked for professional help yet. Feeling pretty on it. Life is good. I've been trying. Remember, last year I was saying I've got to start to start to answer. The question, how are you, by saying, yeah, great. I've been doing that more. I guess that is, that is having a sort of a peripheral help. But um, I've just been putting things off. I've got to do another big round of guest booking for the podcast, for the show. And um, I've been putting it off. I only just started yesterday. I, I made three overtures to people. And it's easy. It's easy to think of a person that I'm excited about. You've made brilliant suggestions. I've got loads and loads on a list. It's easy to do. Just make an overture, make an advance that goes, anyone interested? Are you interested in this? But I just, I put it off. There's, a, oh, there's someone brilliant whose agent I've been in touch with and they've given me the number and said, ring me anytime. And I just haven't. And it's, it's, I think, the same sort of mentality that I have, and perhaps you do too, of being out, like I might finish a show in central London on a night when I'm staying over there and, um, and not parenting the next day, and I could stay out, and I arguably have the energy, and I think there's so many people I could hang out with, and then I don't ring any of them, and I get on the bus and go home. Why do I do that? Why do I do that? Um, it's a similar sort of an energy, just a weird kind of edgy procrastination. I'm not asking for solutions at this point. I know 10 of you will email me and suggest various apps <laughs> or self-help books or stuff like that. I'm just kind of venting at the moment. I, you know, it's, I've got it pretty together. This is a terrible post amble. Shall we cut this? No, no, no. We'll leave, we'll leave it in. Warts and all. That's the... That's the spirit. That's uh, that's the that's the comedy gravestone or the, the regular gravestone. Here lies Stuart Goldsmith, warts and all. You know that's uh, that's the plan at least. Um, uh, children's book update: Neon Leon, brilliant, loved it. I mean, it doesn't get better than the title. It's great, but the title is exceptional. Um, the, I'm I'm going to go. I've got parenting to do, and I am elongating a postamble that is a very minor one about stress and anxiety and procrastination in order to i don't know what <laughs> i'm not procrastinating for the parenthood certainly but um for the parenting 
But uh, this is, as you can hear, this is falling apart. I'm busy and tired and happy and a little bit edgy. How are you? I hope you're good. I really appreciate you guys getting in touch. I've had such lovely emails recently. I will at some point tell you about this guy in France if he's okay with it, because it's a really funny situation to be in, and it deserves some analysis. But like I said, I'll have to check with him first. But I've had some really, really positive, wonderful kind of... uh, What's the word? I overuse the word invigorating, as you know. I'll try and think of something else. Just some very positive contact from you recently. And uh, I appreciate that, and I've told you I appreciate it in, in individual cases. Um, and I hope you're good. How are you? Don't tweet it. <laughs> Don't tweet it. We're doing hashtag career fractions, are we? Or fraction careers? I can't remember whatever I said before. Um, but I hope you're good. I hope you're good. I want for you to be well and happy. And uh, And if you're listening to this thinking... I'm not very well or happy at the moment, then have a little sit down, make yourself a cup of tea, and just give yourself a break. You're not as bad as you think you are. You're way better. All right? Good. Speak to you soon. (laughs) 